Open your Bibles up to the book of Numbers. Uh, we are going to be covering the whole thing today, but we are going to uh, spend a little bit of time in, in one particular key passage in chapter 14, and so you can turn there if you have one of the Welcome Table Bibles. We, um, it's on page 127. So we're in week four of a five-week series that we've been going through the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, also known as the Torah uh, in, uh, to, uh, the, in the Jewish context. And so uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We are looking at the book of Numbers today. And so if you've been, been here over the past three weeks, are, are you starting to get an overall sense of uh, the, the main storyline of Scripture in these books, right? This is one of the reasons, really the main reason we're going through them this way, so that we can see these major themes and how they develop throughout the rest of Scripture, how, how they, they set the plot line for the whole story of redemption that, that Scripture tells. They introduce God to us, they tell us why he created us, and they tell us what our relationship with him was, what it should have looked like. They tell us why it doesn't look like that anymore, and they tell us uh, all throughout, they, they, they give us these hints of how God is going to do something to make everything right again and restore what we've broken Last week, Luke Holderby helped us see that the book of Leviticus doesn't belong on some dusty bookshelf in the dimly lit reference section of the library, right? It belongs in our minds and, and in our hearts because it helps us understand the mind and the heart of our holy God who graciously and, and lovingly made a way so that he could dwell in the midst of an unholy people. No other God of any nation at that time was known for something like that. No other God in, in history is known for something like that. Because there is no other God. He gave them instructions to build the tabernacle and, and he established a priesthood and, and these sacrifices that would make them ceremonial, ceremonially clean so that uh, they could be near to God and, and not die, right? He's coming down off of his mountain. He's dwelling in the midst, in the, in the center of his people. And so they need a way for him not to kill them when he gets there, right? The book of Exodus ends with the glory of the Lord filling this tabernacle and, and Moses being unable to enter. It says, God spoke to Moses from the tent, meaning God is in the tent. Moses is not in the tent. And the book of Numbers begins by saying that God spoke to Moses inside the tent. Now Moses is in there. He finally gets to enter. Why? Because of the book of Leviticus. Moses was able to enter, to enter the tent once the appropriate sacrifices were made so that uh, 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 he could be ceremonially clean and presented as holy before a holy God. Leviticus tells us what God did to make this possible, to bring Moses inside the tent and to draw people near to him. And so as God spoke to Moses from inside the tent, as the opening line of the book of Numbers tells us, the Lord was telling Moses to get the people ready to pack up and move. After being camped out on the base of Mount Sinai for about a year, God's people were about to embark on a road trip that would literally go down in the history books, right? And we're reading this history book this morning have you ever threatened to turn the car around because uh, your kids asked, how much longer, 15 minutes into the, 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 the road trip, right? The book of Numbers is going to put you and me in the car with our Lord and help us realize we are the ones that are constantly asking how much longer. Now, we sang, come Lord, no longer tarry. There's a difference between that. And are we there yet? Right? And we're going to find out what that difference is as we go through this. Numbers is going to show us a loving Heavenly Father who is patient, who is faithful. If you, listen, if you write in your Bible, write where the title Numbers is, put a dash there and write FAITHFUL in all caps. God is faithful. That's the theme. That's the message of Numbers. He's patient. He's faithful to get us where we need to go, even if in love he has to pull the car over several times on the way and discipline his children. So I want to pray and ask God to help us this morning in his faithfulness. Lord, we thank you for your mercy and grace. 
that it's new every morning. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. May we never grow tired of that. Help us to see the example that you've set before us of how not to receive the grace that you've given to us, of how, how, to, how, to, how not to respond as the Israelites did with grumbling and complaining, but to respond in love and a desire for faithfulness of our own, knowing that we need the faithful God to help us be faithful to God. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the book of Numbers is called Numbers in English because it begins and ends with a census of the Israelite people. There's a lot of counting in this uh, 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 book that takes place. And and if you came in, hopefully you grabbed one of the the papers off the back there. Uh, There's some really good... uh, Uh, visual representations of all the different things that are going on in the book of Numbers. It's a double-sided handout, uh, and it also shows uh, a balance of of the people's unfaithfulness and God's faithfulness on the backside. So I'll I'll make reference to that here in a minute, but I want to encourage you to take that home and and use that as you study through the book of Numbers as well. Um, The Hebrew title for the book gives us this different mental picture, though, than just numbers, than just counting in English, that the Hebrew title would read, In the Wilderness. And now this is where we get the, the, the wandering in the wilderness. You're probably more familiar with the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness than you are with the censuses that were taken, but those things fit together to show us how God is faithful and always faithful to a rebellious people. And what we'll see is that God shows his faithfulness through both mercy and judgment. Mercy and judgment, God is faithful in both of those things. The book of Numbers is broken up into to five sections that flow like this. The Israelites begin camped out in a wilderness. Then they pack their bags and they travel. Then they're camped out in another wilderness. Then they pack their bags and they travel again. And then they end up in a, in a third wilderness. And so that's how we're going to look at it. Wilderness, travel, trip. Wilderness, travel, wilderness. And that's how we're going to look at it this morning. We're going to take a little road trip with the people of Israel The land of Canaan is our destination. Mount Sinai is our starting point. It's it's a trip to the promised land. It's going to take way longer to get there than the GPS indicates. Not because God is lousy with directions, but because the people are rebellious complainers who don't trust God to navigate. God's continual promise was to rescue his people and to give them abundant life. The people's continual complaint was that God has brought them out of abundant life in Egypt to let them die in the wilderness. The difficulties of following and worshiping the Lord clouded their judgment and made them quickly forget that they were slaves in the place that they longed to return to. And that God was bringing them out of misery and bondage into something far greater than they could ever ask or imagine. And yet they had a hard time not seeing that. What God was bringing them into, they had a hard time not seeing that as misery and bondage. We're going to see this cycle of promise and complaining, faithfulness and rebellion as the book unfolds. So the first wilderness, we're at Mount Sinai still. We're familiar with this wilderness. God led the people out of Israel, uh, of, of Israel, out of Egypt and into the wilderness to Mount Sinai to worship him on this mountain. They've been camped out at the base of Mount Sinai for a year now. Since Exodus chapter 19, all of the book of Leviticus takes place here. We won't leave Mount Sinai until we get to Numbers chapter 10. That's when they hit the road. But before they left, God told them to get organized, and that's what the first nine chapters of numbers are all about. How many of you are, are checklist kind of people, right? Before you leave for a trip, okay, you're crossing off items that you've already packed. You have another list, or you're, or you're at least highlighting the list that you've made already of the things that you still need to use, but then you need to pack right before you walk out the door, right? You, you have all the directions uh, laid out. You, you've already gassed up the car. You, you, you've, you've got the, the, the route mapped out. You've allowed for three stops that can take up to exactly seven minutes, each, right? So that you can still make good time. Listen, it's good to be prepared. It's good to be prepared. Whenever my family goes anywhere, uh, my wife and I, when, when we get into the car, we count our kids. 
okay? We have several of them. And, and, and especially this becomes important when, when we take two vehicles. We, we drove separate to church today. When we go home, this is what our conversation will be like. I have three, you have one, right? Or I have two, you have two. We're good. It doesn't matter who's in what car, but as long as we end up with four kids, we're, we're good. It's important. It's important. Before they left Mount Sinai, God told Moses to get a head count. Count. Count the people. Organize the people of Israel by tribe and military formation. And he's taking them to the promised land, but they would need to drive out the pagan nations once they got there, the, the, the nations that were living there. And so they needed to be prepared. And it mattered to God who was where in the caravan. The tribe of Judah would lead the way, and that will become more uh, important or, or more obvious why that's important later. So the total number between the, the 12 tribes was 603,550 people. Now, that's every man who was 20 years old or older who was able to fight in the military. So that, that's, that's not including women and children. That's not including younger men than 20. So the number is far greater than that. But the number of men who were able to fight to go into the land and take it, 603,550. The Levites were counted separately because God had anointed them and, and appointed them uh, to set up and tear down the tabernacle and all its furnishings and, and, and items. And so if you have that sheet, you can look at this, uh, uh, this graphic here, the layout of the camp right here on the top. And you can see those are all the, the different families in the, tri in the tribe of Levi surrounding the tabernacle. And then you can see each of the, the 12 tribes uh, out on the perimeter there. Judah is the lead of the, the first three, then Dan is the or, or then uh, Reuben is the lead in the blue there, then Ephraim is the lead in the green, and Dan is the lead in the red there on that graphic. And so they would, they would all exit whenever the Lord would lift up the cloud and move out. They would, uh, Judah would lead out first, open the gate, so to speak, for the Levites to take the tabernacle and everything with it, and then the tribes would follow in formation there. So that gives you this mental picture, this, this, this visual to think about how they're, they're, they're camped, they're organized. So even in, in the way that the camp is laid out, the Levites and the priests serve as a buffer zone for the people who are out on the perimeter. Even in the way God has established the camp, he's given them mediators between him and themselves so that they won't die. Now, if you're doing the math, I just mentioned 13 tribes. Levi is a tribe. He's one of the sons of Jacob. But Joseph, remember son number 11 who went to Egypt way back in Genesis? He, 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 uh, he, he took one of um, uh, uh, or Ephraim and, and Manasseh, two of his grandsons, and he blessed them as his own back in Genesis 48. And so God set the Levites apart now they're in the middle of the camp, and then Ephraim and Manasseh, each of those are, are uh, their own tribal unit for military purposes, and that's how we get uh, the 12 tribes around and still have the one tribe in the middle, just for reference there, in case you were asking that question, how does this work? Once the camp was organized in the first four chapters, chapters 5 through 8 cover several laws that promoted ritual purity among the people so that they would be prepared to travel with God among them. One scholar put it this way. He said, if God's presence is going to dwell in their midst, then every effort should be made to make the camp pure, a place that welcomes God's holiness, right? And in chapter 9, the entire camp observed the Passover meal for the first time since they left Egypt. The Lord had, had even made stipulations for foreigners to, uh, who are among the Israelites to, to participate in it with them. And those stipulations, again, it's, it's just a, kind of these little subtle hints for us that, that God has always planned from the very beginning to save and redeem more than just Israel, to bless more than just the people of Israel. The Israelites ate the Passover meal before they traveled from Egypt to Mount Sinai. Then they ate the Passover meal once again here before they traveled from Mount Sinai to Canaan. And in both cases, it served as this reminder that God was leading them by his power, 
by his might, by his faithfulness, that he was their redeemer. He was the one that brought them out. He was their provider. There's no greater way to be prepared for travel into the unknown than to know the Lord and to rely on him to lead the way. So with their bags packed and the camels and donkeys loaded up, the people set out from Mount Sinai on the first trip. And this takes place in chapters 10 through 12. Exodus 40 told us that, that when the cloud of the Lord lifted from the tabernacle and set out, the people followed. If the cloud stayed put, the people stayed put. If the cloud got up and moved, the people got up and moved. Uh, Numbers chapter 9 reiterates this and, and makes this point for us that the people followed this rule no matter how long or how short the cloud stayed in one place or moved on. It appears in, in, when we're in Numbers 9 that, that the people finally are, are living in a repentant state and they're, and they're doing what God has said. They're waiting for the Lord. No matter how long he stayed, they weren't going to go out ahead of him. Remember, they were impatient in Exodus 32. That's why they worshiped the golden calf. That did not turn out well for them. And so, at the end of Numbers chapter 10, it says that the cloud of the Lord set out. So the people set out with it on a three-day journey. And now, the optimistic hope from chapter 9 quickly turns in to this deep sigh and this head shake beginning in chapter 11. Numbers 11, 1. Now, the people began complaining openly before the Lord about hardship. It's like, it's, it's almost humorous how, how he just so matter-of-factly uh, states this. Just talked about how they waited on the Lord. When he moved, they moved. When he stayed, they stayed. As soon as he moved and they moved, they start grumbling. They complained openly before the Lord about hardship. It's like, it's like when, you're, uh, when your house is, is, is just barely out of your rearview mirror and, and the kids are already starting to argue about who got the better seat in the car, right, for the ride. Or one of them yells up to the, to the front, man, I'm hot, I'm cold, I'm hungry. My kids have never done that. I would never. I'm not about to put them to shame. It's usually me. I'm hungry right now. God didn't find it funny. He didn't find it funny. Instead, his righteous anger burned hot, says. His righteous anger burned hot and fire from the Lord blazed among them and consumed the outskirts of the camp. Can you just picture this for a minute? I mean, they're grumbling and they're complaining and God is burning things up around them. The people cried out to Moses. He prayed to the Lord and, and the fire died down. They're not off to a great start. It wasn't long after the Israelites left Egypt that they started grumbling and complaining about food, about not having any food, and so God provided them with what? Remember? Manna. Not long after they left Mount Sinai, they started complaining about the manna. They'd been eating it every single day for the past year and got tired of the taste. Numbers 11, 4 through 6. The riffraff among them. I love that. I'm not sure what that is in Hebrew, but that's probably an accurate translation. The riffraff among them had a strong craving for other food. The Israelites wept again and said, Who will feed us meat? We remember the free fish we ate in Egypt along with the cucumbers and melons and leeks and onions and garlic. But now our appetite is gone. There's nothing to look at but this manna. They didn't want God. They didn't want what God was providing for them anymore. They wanted somebody else to give them something that they imagined in their mind was much better. Instead of remembering the Lord, they remembered Egypt. And they wanted to go back. But they had forgotten that along with the cucumbers and the leeks and the onions and, and all of the delicious food came chains and forced labor, slavery and bondage. 
You ever lost your appetite for God's good provision because you grew tired of the same thing over and over? When we lose our appetite for God's daily grace and his forgiveness, we quickly begin to crave the things that he's rescued us from and we look for somebody or something else to give us what we want. We can hear our own voice in that echo of the Israelites. All we have is this manna. Leftovers again. Right? God's provision doesn't always seem exciting. Often seems basic and normal, which can actually make it easy for us to forget that God is the one that's actually giving it to us. We just come to expect it as the thing that we get, and then we don't want it. God has given us, he's the source of everything that we need for physical and spiritual life. And he's given us everything we need for life and godliness. But is, listen, God's provision, if we could just grasp this, and I'm telling you this not because I have this figured out, but because I need you to help me remember this. Because tomorrow I'll forget. This afternoon I'll forget and I'll complain and I'll whine and I need my family, and I don't just mean my physical family, I mean my spiritual family to say, hey, remember? God's the one that's providing that. And you know why? Because God's provision, even though it feels mundane sometimes, normal, isn't it good that he's normally providing? Isn't it good that his provision is always consistent, it's always enough, and it's always what we truly need? Always. How's your appetite for the things that God continues to give you? People wanted meat, so God gave them quail like he did when they complained about food after they left Egypt. Only this time, while they were eating the quail, the Lord struck them with a very severe plague while it was still in their teeth, it says. And they buried the people who craved the meat. They named that place Graves of Craving. And then they moved on from there. Chapter 12, now it's Aaron and Miriam's turn, and they rebel against Moses. They're, they're jealous of their brother because God let him ride shotgun. In the journey, right? They're stuck in the middle seat. They, they wanted to share in Moses' privileged position. They said, does the Lord only speak through Moses? Does the Lord only speak through Moses? Doesn't he also speak through us? Miriam led in a, in a song back in Genesis. Aaron was Moses' mouthpiece to Pharaoh. The Lord heard their complaint. We need to get used to this phrase. His righteous anger burned against them. He publicly reaffirmed Moses' special position by giving Miriam a skin disease and making the entire camp wait for seven days while she remained outside the camp until the disease was gone. After that, they moved on, and they came to a town called Kadesh, where they camped out in the second wilderness, the wilderness of Paran. Now, Kadesh is on the southernmost border of the land of Canaan, the land that God had promised to give Abraham and Isaac and, and Jacob. So if it were still around today, it would be on the border of modern-day Israel and Egypt, about 75 miles southwest of Jerusalem, just to give us kind of a mental map of, of where we're talking about here. Chapters 13 and, and 14 are pivotal chapters in the book of Numbers. They, they come in on, in chapter 13 and they're camped out in this town right on the border of, uh, of the promised land when God told Moses, send men to scout out the land of Canaan. I am giving to the Israelites. Now listen, we need to, to notice here what God said at the end of that command. Go send these guys up there to scout out the land. What? that I am giving to the Israelites. He promised to give it to them. Listen, God never turns back on his promises. And yet in spite of this, it would be the Israelites who would turn back. Twelve men go up into the land of, of Canaan to scout it out. One man from each of the twelve tribes of Israel. They're gone for 40 days, traveling all the way to the northern border of the land and back. And then they brought a huge cluster of grapes 
with them, along with some pomegranates and figs. And the consensus of the group was that it was indeed a land flowing with milk and honey. That means it's rich in its produce. It's a fruitful land. It's desirable for everything. So for a people who had lost their appetite with manna, now they're bringing back this, these delicacies, right? This had to sound amazing to them. But then 10 of the 12 men who scouted out the land were scared of the people that lived there. They said the Canaanites were strong and their cities were fortified. The other two spies, though, had a different perspective. Caleb and Joshua remembered that God had promised to give them the land, and so they weren't afraid of the inhabitants. They didn't say, no, like, it's not going to be, you know, it's going to be super easy. But, but they weren't afraid. They were realistic about who was there, but they knew God's promise. Caleb told the people, let's go up now and take possession of the land, because we can certainly conquer it. The other ten men responded by saying, we can't attack the people. They're stronger than we are. Now, I want to go back just for a moment to the first worship song that the Israelites sang. Right after God split the Red Sea open and let them cross on dry, grand, uh, dry land and then closed it up over the most powerful army that was known to the world at that time. The most powerful military swallowed up by the sea. This is what they sang, Exodus 15. Start in verse 13. With your faithful love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. You will guide them to your holy dwelling with your strength. When the, when the peoples hear, that is the peoples in the land of Canaan, they will shudder. Anguish will seize the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom will be terrified. Trembling will seize the leaders of Moab. And all the inhabitants of Canaan will panic. Terror and dread will fall on them. They will be as still as a stone because of your powerful arm until your people pass by, Lord, until the people whom you purchased pass by. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your possession, Lord. You have prepared a place for your dwelling, Lord. Your hands have established the sanctuary. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Beautiful song. After scouting out the land, only two of the 12 spies were still singing it. The ones who had stopped singing it convinced the rest of the Israelite community that Egypt was better than the place that God had brought them to. They threatened to stone Moses and Aaron and Caleb and Joshua and they wanted to appoint a new leader that would take them back to Egypt. And in the midst of their terrible rebellion, the glory of the Lord appeared to the people and that's where we'll pick up in Numbers chapter 14. Look at verse 11. The Lord said to Moses, how long will these people despise me? How long will they not trust in me despite all the signs I have performed among them? I will strike them with a plague and destroy them. Then I will make you into a greater and mightier nation than they are. Now we need to understand, God is not going, are we there yet? He has every right to say, how long will these people treat me this way? And this, this little conversation ought to sound familiar to us. It's the same thing God said to Moses back in Exodus 32. When, when while Moses was up on the mountain with God, the people were down worshiping the golden calf. How long will these people treat me this way? Moses responded to God in Exodus 32 by saying, why, why would you destroy your people and give the Egyptians a reason to doubt your glory? And he appealed to God's covenant promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And then God relented and showed Moses his glory on Mount Sinai by letting all of his goodness pass in front of Moses and declaring his name to Moses in Exodus 34. You remember that? After the people turned away yet again in Numbers 14, Moses responded to God again by saying, listen, why should the nations mock your glory by claiming that you got them out of Egypt but you couldn't bring them into the land you promised? Why would you want them to do that? And this time Moses made his appeal by quoting what God had said about himself in Exodus 34 when he showed Moses his glory. Look at Numbers 14, 17. So now, may my Lord's power be magnified just as you have spoken. He's referring back to that moment on the mountain. The Lord is slow to anger 
and abounding in faithful love, forgiving iniquity and rebellion, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children to the third and the fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people in keeping with the greatness of your faithful love, just as you have forgiven them from Egypt until now. The Lord relented, and he pardoned their iniquity as Moses requested, but he did not leave the guilty unpunished. Everyone 20 years or older who was registered in the census at the beginning of the book was condemned to die in the wilderness without ever stepping foot in the promised land. God God had had them take the census so that these men could be organized into military units and be ready to fight when they got to the promised land, ready to drive out the nations that were there, all their enemies. Once they got there, though, and they scouted it out, they they refused to fight. Instead, they tucktailed and run and ran. They'd all seen God's power and glory and the miracles that he'd done in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet they still turned away from him. God said that they despised him, that they didn't trust him. Listen, God is never mistaken in his assessment of people. What he says here is 100% true. We can't spin this. They were faithless. They were guilty of rebellion against him. And when they complained about Moses and Aaron, the people said, if only we had died in this wilderness. So God told them that's exactly what would happen. He would let them die in the wilderness and bring their children into the promised land to enjoy it. But he also brought the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children. Look at verses 33 and 34, Numbers 14. Your children will be be shepherds in the wilderness for 40 years and bear the penalty for your acts of unfaithfulness until all your corpses lie scattered in the wilderness. You will bear the consequences of your iniquities 40 years based on the number of the 40 days that you scouted the land, a year for each day. You will know my displeasure. What a terrifying thing to hear the Lord say. You will know my displeasure. Perhaps even more terrifying is the certainty with which God declares their judgment in verse 35. It says, I, the Lord, have spoken. I swear that I will do this to the entire evil community that has conspired against me. They will come to an end in the wilderness and there they will die. God is not a man that he should lie or change his mind. When he speaks, he acts. When he makes a promise, he fulfills it. He struck down the ten men who had scouted the land and incited the entire community to complain and rebel. Only Caleb and Joshua remained alive because they had believed God's promise to give them the land. But then some of the, Israel, some of the condemned Israelites, they changed their mind and they tried to go up into Canaan even though the Lord didn't go up with them. And guess what happened? It says they were routed by the Amalekites and the Canaanites. Now, it might be tempting for us to think that God is being unfair here. I mean, weren't the people finally uh, doing what God wanted them to do, right? Like if you tell your child to do something and, and they say, okay, but they don't do it for like a half an hour and then later they go and do it. You want them to obey immediately, right? But at least they did it. This isn't the case here. They weren't doing what God wanted them to do. In both cases, the people ignored God and they did what they wanted. They didn't believe God's promise to help them and then they didn't believe God's promise to judge them. So they acted on their own. Listen, God's punishment is incredibly severe, but it's always incredibly fair. It's always incredibly fair. You would think this punishment would put an end to the Israelites' rebellious behavior, but it didn't. Back in chapter 12, Aaron and Miriam rebelled against Moses. Chapter 16 and 17, the Levites now are rebelling against Aaron. Some family feuds run deep, don't they? It wasn't enough for Korah and some of his other Levite relatives that that the Lord made them helpers for the priests. They wanted to be the priests themselves. It wasn't enough for them that God separated them from the rest of the Israelites and brought them near to himself 
all they could focus on was the fact that they weren't as close to Aaron and the other priests. These men, again, the word that's used is despised. They despised the Lord, and the Lord opened up the ground, and it swallowed up Korah along with all of his people, and fire came from the Lord and consumed 250 men who had rebelled along with Korah. You will know my displeasure. The next day, the entire Israelite community complained about Moses and Aaron, and they said, you've killed the Lord's people. But we know their complaints were really directed at God, and because they accused God of injustice, he sent a plague on them, and he killed 14,700 more people because they complained that he killed 250 plague stopped when Aaron stood between the dead and the living and made atonement for the people. And after that, the Lord publicly reaffirmed Aaron's special position by choosing the staff that he used with the Pharaoh in, in, in Egypt. And, and, and uh, he chose that staff among the rest. And he made it sprout buds and blossoms and almonds. All of this had happened while they were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. They're, they're, they're carrying out the sentence that God put on them. And then at the beginning of chapter 20, the people of Israel come back once again to the town of Kadesh on the border of the promised land. And once again, they're preparing to enter, but this time they, they can't go straight in. They have to take the scenic route. And that brings us to the second trip. Miriam died and was buried in Kadesh, so she didn't get to go into the promised land. Shortly after the Israelites set out from there, then they ran into another problem. When they had left Egypt... The Israelites ran out of water when they were traveling. And here, here we are once again without any water to drink. And so God resolved their problem back in, in Exodus by telling Moses, strike the rock at the base of Mount Sinai. I will be down there. I will stand before the rock. When you hit it, water will come out. And water came gushing out and the people drank from it. And now, in the midst of all the people's whining and complaining and rebellion from the time that they fled Egypt, Moses had been faithful to follow God's instructions, right? He, he's the one. He's the mediator. He's, he's, he's the prophet. He's the guy that, that, that's going to deliver them and help them stay faithful. Throughout the book of Numbers, whenever the people rebelled, the prominent posture of Moses and often Aaron along with him was to fall face down before the Lord and to plead for mercy on behalf of the people. Now, Moses has also had his moments of complaining and self-pity, but to this point, he's been faithful, right? He's been faithful to lead God's people with humility, to intercede on their behalf when they go astray. So when the people complained about not having any water in chapter 20, we would expect Moses to follow God's instructions again, right? But he doesn't. This time, God told Moses and Aaron to speak to the rock, but instead, Moses struck the rock like he did back in Exodus 17. In fact, he struck it twice. And when Moses and Aaron gathered the people, Moses said, listen, you rebels, must we bring water out of this rock for you? This was not a righteous act of humility. This was a self-righteous act of rebellion against God. Remember, God's assessment of, of people is Spot on every time. And God says to Moses and Aaron, you rebelled against me. You did not trust me. Moses and Aaron had put themselves in God's place. Must we bring water out of this rock for you? They hijacked God's holiness. God will not allow that. He told Moses and Aaron, you both rebelled against my command because you didn't trust me to demonstrate my holiness in the sight of the Israelites. You will not bring these people into the land that I have given to them. God still demonstrated his holiness that day, both through mercy and through judgment. He still brought water out of the rock. Abundant water flowed out of that rock, even though Moses and Aaron had disobeyed. But he also brought consequences upon them for their disobedience. Aaron died on the top of that mountain, or on the top of a mountain, and his son Eliezer took his place as the chief priest, and the people mourned for 30 days. So we're reading, and we go, maybe, maybe this, maybe this is the thing 
that would be the end of their complaining. Maybe now they would take God's holiness and his promises seriously and they would trust him. But when they set out from the mountain that Aaron died on, the people became impatient because of the journey. They, they couldn't go through the land of Edom. They had to go around it. And that means they have to go south to go north. I hate it when I miss a turn. Can't you just hear them ask, are we there yet? How much longer? The people spoke against God and against Moses once again. Why have you led us from Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread. There's no water. And we detest this wretched food. They started backseat driving. Started telling God that he doesn't know where he's going. But once again, it's they who have taken the wrong turn. They're completely ungrateful, completely untrusting of God. So the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people and they bit, him, and, and, and they bit them so that many Israelites died. Now, that's kind of a peculiar response, right? The Lord sent fire. He sent plagues and, and disease. He's opened up the ground and swallowed people up. He's allowed Israel's enemies to rout them. He's made them wander in the desert for 40 years. Why snakes this time? Because the people have been sinning against God over and over and over. Where did sin first show up? In the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve were ungrateful and untrusting of God and they listened to what? Snake. Serpent. They were snake bitten and the venom of their sin led to death. And every human being ever since has been poisoned by the venom of our own sin. We need the antidote or we will die. What's perhaps even more peculiar than sending the poisonous snakes among the people is what God did next. The people recognized their sin. They came to Moses in repentance and asked Moses to intercede with the Lord so that he would take the snakes away. And here's the Lord's answer. He says to Moses to take a bronze snake, hammer it out, stick it on a pole, Set it up in front of the people. And anybody who looks at it, anyone who was bitten who looks at this snake, won't die. They'll be saved. In John 3, when Jesus was talking with Nicodemus about being born again, he said this, John 3, 14 and 15. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. And then came some of the most well-known and, and wonderful words in all of Scripture, John three sixteen. right? For God so loved the world, he loved the world in this way, that he gave his one and only Son, that everyone who believes in him, everyone who looks to him in faith, will not perish, but have eternal life. By looking at the bronze snake lifted up on the pole, the people were looking at the symbol of their sin in judgment. They couldn't escape it. They have to confess that. But they were also believing God's promise that he would heal them if they looked at it. They were acknowledging that God, only God, could rescue them from death. And his way was the only way. There was no other way. Jesus, just as the snake on the pole was the only means of rescue from physical death for the people of Israel, Jesus on the cross is the only means of rescue from spiritual death for all people. Unless you look to Christ in faith, you will perish in your sin. But if you believe God's promise and trust that Christ has taken the judgment that you deserve upon himself, you'll be saved. This is God's promise. So what do you see when you look at the cross? Do you see the symbol of your sin and judgment? Do you see the only way to be rescued from spiritual death and to have eternal life? If not, why not believe God's promise of salvation and turn from your sin and trust in Jesus? Now, God has said this about himself, that he's slow to anger. We can read numbers and find that hard to believe, right? It can kind of seem like God has a bad temper with all the judgment that he's brought on the people because of their complaining and their rebellion. But all this time, all this time, God has been nothing but faithful to keep his promise. 
We see that most clearly in chapters 20 through to 24 when the people of Israel come to the last wilderness in the plains of Moab. They're, they're near the Jordan River now. They've gone down around Eden and have come up on the east side of the land of Canaan. They're camped out across from Jericho on the Jordan River on the eastern border of the promised land. And chapters 22 through 24 tell this really strange story about a pagan sorcerer named Balaam and a talking donkey. Okay? It's weird. We don't have time today to tell the whole story, so I want to encourage you to go back and read that later, and you'll have the context for it here. But here's the gist of it. Balak is the king of Moab. Moab is the territory that they're in right now. When Balak sees that the Israelite camped out in his territory near the Jordan River, he's terrified because they're so numerous that he feared that they would become more powerful than he was, just like the Pharaoh did when they grew in Egypt. And so he hired Balaam, this pagan sorcerer, to go up the hill, into the hill country above the people of Israel and to pronounce curses over them so that Balak could defeat them. Balak tried to get Balaam to curse Israel four different times, and every time, every time that Balaam tried to curse them, God made him bless them instead. Now, Balaam was not a follower of God. <laughs> he doesn't get good credit in the New Testament when people talk about him. He was a greedy man who was focused on himself more than anyone else. And yet every time this man opened his mouth to curse the Israelites for the, for the Moab king, Balak, he could only speak about God's faithfulness and utter words of blessing over God's people. And during the fourth and final blessing, Balaam said this, a star will come from Jacob and a scepter will arise from Israel. He was speaking about a future king who would rule over the nations. Remember how God organized the camp into the military formations at the beginning of the book? Who led the way when they moved out? Judah. Judah. Back in Genesis 49, when Jacob blessed each of his sons, he said this about Judah. The scepter will not depart from Judah or the staff from between his feet until he whose right it is comes and the obedience of the peoples belongs to him. Who is the king that came from the line of Judah? Who is the king who sits on the eternal throne and rightfully commands the obedience of all people? Who is he? Jesus Christ. He is the star of Jacob. He is the lion of Judah. Is God faithful to keep his promises or not? Yes, he is. In fact, every single one of his promises are yes and amen. In Jesus Christ. While Israel was down in the camp grumbling and complaining, listen, they had no clue this was going on above them in the hill country. Not anything. They're grumbling about God and God is protecting them. He's blessing them instead of cursing them. The book of Numbers teaches us that God's blessings do not depend on the faithfulness of his people. They depend on the faithfulness of our God. He's made covenant promises. He's fulfilled every one of them in Jesus Christ. We could search the whole of Scripture and we won't find one single person who has earned the blessings that God has given to them except Christ himself. And that's the point. How can a righteous God bless unrighteous people who deserve nothing but his righteous judgment? Jesus is the only way. Jesus is God's blessing of grace and the proof of his faithfulness to rebellious sinners like you and me and the Israelites. If we read the book of Numbers and we're shocked at the Israelites' behavior or we're displeased with God's behavior, then we're not being honest with ourselves. The reality is that we are the ones who are impatient with God, not the other way around. We are the grumblers. We are the complainers. We blame God for the hardships of his discipline. We fail to see the blessings of his grace in the midst of it. We are prone to wander, just like we sang this morning. And our patient and our faithful Father lovingly shepherds us back to the right path over and over and over. I think it was Elizabeth Barrett Browning that wrote the poem, how do I love thee? Let me count the ways. We could look at numbers and say, man, 
how does God love me? And God would say, let me count the ways. Numbers ends with another census. The old generation died in the wilderness because they despised the Lord. The new generation would be the ones to go in the promised land to drive out its inhabitants. The total number of men, again, 20 years old or, or more, who were able to fight is 601,730. It's not far off from the initial census of 603,550 men. Even after the Lord put all these people to death as judgment for their sin and rebellion and, and, and uh, distrust of God, he remained faithful to his promise to multiply Abraham's descendants and make them numerous. And he remained faithful to his promise to bring them into the land of Canaan. But before they entered, Moses would, would give them one final exhortation to remember God's faithfulness and to set blessings and curses before them and to tell them to choose life instead of death. And then he would give the leadership over to Joshua because remember, Moses can't go in now. And that's what the book of Deuteronomy is about, and we'll look at that next week. The book of Numbers ought to help us set our minds and our hearts on the countless ways that God remains faithful to us when we continue to prove ourselves to be unfaithful to him. It ought to convince us of the countless reasons that we need Jesus Christ and it ought to drive us to joyful worship and thanksgiving for God's daily provision of grace through his son, through his spirit, through his word, and through his church. As a good father, he disciplines us when we stray. And as a good shepherd, he guides us back to obedience to him and love. May we be a people who remember the Lord's faithfulness to us and remind each other of the Lord's faithful to, faithfulness to us and re, rely solely on his grace and his strength to live in faithfulness to him. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the faithfulness that Numbers has showed us. May we see your faithfulness all throughout scripture as we open it up. Long to know you more. Long to follow you more. Lord, we need help. We confess our unfaithfulness, and we thank you for Jesus who's covered all of it. We pray this in his name. Amen.